morning. Welcome to Church of the City. My name is Russell, a teaching pastor here. I'm going to have you go ahead and take a seat this morning, which is a bit irregular for us. I totally admit. So if you're here on a regular basis, normally we do a pretty big, robust worship set to start with. And then um, if you want to scoot out before you have to listen to me, people do that. This morning, we wanted to ambush you and make you listen first. So you couldn't get away, not really. Um, we actually do have a really, I, th- I hope, special morning um, planned on a regular basis. If you haven't caught this drift, we don't always have food in the back, um, but once a month we do, uh, the first Sunday of the month, um, which is amazing that the food shows up. Um, people plan it and people bring it and it's brilliant. Um, you're probably benefiting from it right now. But to dovetail in with that, we, we as a church have a value system, like every church and every community and every human does, whether we say it or not. But we're really trying hard as a young church start to, to put words to what we value. And one of the things we value is not making these, these groups of generations kind of like live on their own. You know, if you think about the like classic American life, um, until we're in our early adulthood, we're not really around a lot of people in our peer groups who are more than two or three years younger, older than we are <clears throat> in most cases. And that's a problem because we get into adulthood and we really struggle to know how to live and operate and be human among people who are maybe quite a bit younger than us or quite a bit older than us. So we talk a lot about this at Church of the City, that we are a church that quite simply is for humans who are broken and who are looking for hope, period, full stop. And we wrap our hope around Jesus, around his identity, around what he's done, his work on earth as he's come. And so for us, that means that we're not going to be ageists. We're not going to discriminate based on someone being young or old. And so we are going to go the other direction. We're planning this morning. We're going to take a break in the middle of our church gathering. We're going to release you if you're a parent to go upstairs and retrieve your child and bring your child with you for a worship set at the end of our gathering. Um, those of you who don't have kiddos, this is super important for us, um, particularly those of you who um, have some age on you as far as maybe your kids are grown out of the house those of you who are young adults who are thinking about having kids at some point, um, it may feel irrelevant to you to have someone else's kids in our gathering together. But it's super relevant because our kids, the kids of Church of the City, are looking to you for direction and guidance. They're looking to you, literally looking up to you, to try to figure out how to be human, how to, how to do life, how to follow Jesus well. And, and they see in us, if all we're doing for them is stuffing them in the corner of a building and saying, hey, we don't want to be bothered by you until you're old enough to have a meaningful conversation with us. Um, that's a problem. It's a huge problem. And so we're, we're trying our best to remedy it, and we need your help. We want you to be a part of it. And so, yeah, it's going to be way more energetic and probably a bit chaotic having children with us. Um, if you know anything about the kids of this church community, you know they have tons and tons of energy. Um, but by God's grace um, for us, we together collectively from the youngest born infant to the oldest people in our community, we together are the church called Church of the City, living out life here in Portland, Oregon. So that's what's going to happen. And that is why we are going to, to lean right into our, our time teaching. Um, on a regular basis, Church of the City, what we do um, is we go through um, whole sections of the Bible. And we're committed to understanding scripture, understanding who God is, in an attempt to try to understand who we are and the relationship between us and this God who's portrayed in the scripture. And so for us, um, that's typical. We just last week finished um, a very long, uh, exhaustive look at the story of John, or sorry, Jesus through the eyes of John, called the Gospel of John. 
And, and we're taking a break right now to move into a series that I'm really excited about. We've done this before in the past, um, but we're re-engaging um, what we're calling our questionable series. And, and what this is, if you haven't heard yet what we're doing, is, is we want to address some of the most important, pressing, or maybe just mundane, but you haven't had an answer to them yet, questions of being a human who's trying to follow Jesus of Nazareth, or who's maybe interested. Maybe you're, you're at a spot where you are not committed uh, to following Jesus. That's awesome. That's wonderful. We want you to be a part of this church community, and we want you to be part of this conversation. So if you'll notice on the screen behind me, there's actually a phone number. That phone number is for you. It's our church office number, which is actually a Google Voice number, which you know anything about that means you can text it. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> That's Brandon, our worship pastor, by the way. <sighs> Let me introduce you to Brandon. Right? Right? How can you text an office number? Because we're high tech around here. Actually, it's because we didn't have an office for a long time and we needed a number that people could call and text. And so we got a Google Voice number and it's maintained the same and it's amazing, works well for us. But here's the thing. If you text that number, you can text any question you want. We're not keeping the score on your phone number, trying to track you. It's just a way to get the information to us if you want, very anonymously. And or you have those white communication cards Brandon pointed out earlier. Um, you, we want you to fill that out with your contact info and all that, even if you come on a regular basis, just so we know you're here and that you're growing towards Jesus with anything going on in your world. But you can write questions on that. And if you want to be anonymous even there, take two of those cards. They're small. Um, we've got plenty. Write your name on one and take a blank one and write a question on it and leave it in the offering later, um, and we'll get that question. So what we're going to be doing is sifting through these questions, doing our best to approach them, I'm, I'm really excited about this. One of the things we're going to do this time around through the series is we're actually going to get a panel of some of our leaders here at Church of the City to do more of a conversational ad hoc set of questions um, with you. So we'll give you the date on that as we get closer to it. Um, but just really excited for this, um, this stretch of what we're doing. But what that means um, is that we've got to start laying some foundations for this conversation. Um, and this is something that if you know anything about me, if you've been around me, um, this, this is... I just i be honest about this. This whole conversation about questions is a byproduct of my story following Jesus. And I think it's a story that as I've pastored and loved a lot of people over the years, including many of you, that it's, it's become quite common among us. That even if we would say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I have been for some time, there are still parts of this whole thing that you don't have figured out. And that because it is a whole thing, because there's community and there's social aspects to it, there's pressure, a lot of times it, it doesn't feel safe to ask a question that, that might betray the fact that maybe, maybe there's something going on inside of you that doesn't look exactly like the perfect American Christian. And if, if you're betrayed, if, if, if you expose, you've got questions or doubts or just things haven't been settled before, um, and, and that comes back you know, on you, that you know, you're, you're looked at as someone, well, maybe they're not faithful. Maybe they aren't really a Jesus follower if they have these questions. Then you'll just be quiet. These questions will stay where they are inside of your soul. And the problem with that is that they eat at us. Questions that go unanswered in any category of life, but around these most important things like faith, if they go unanswered, then we really run the risk of that becoming the beginning of the thing that actually does push us away from Jesus. The thing that begins to grow into it, a thing that's too big and too overwhelming, and we don't understand it and know what to do with it. So our goal here is to ask hard questions, honestly. Um, to, to be able to put it out there in front of each other where we're still trying to figure out who we are and what we are. So begin this, I need to just confess um, more of my story. Um, two different times in my life, I'm 35, almost 36, two different times in my life, 
I've tried to walk away from Jesus. And on both occasions, I came to Jesus in middle school. Uh, on both occasions for me, it was intellectual. It was that I had questions that were unresolved and unanswered. The most recent time for me was when I was in seminary. So I had an undergraduate degree in theology already. I was working in a church already. That church had said they wanted to pay for my graduate work to go to seminary, to be better educated around the things of God and how to lead in church and all of it. So I was, I was in deep. I mean, you, you talk about social pressure of being a churchgoer or a Christian that comes to church on often a regular basis and not having space to ask a question. I was, I was drowning in, in the depth of my commitments to be a person following Jesus. And I had huge doubts. And I, I got to a spot where those doubts became so pervasive that I made a decision, an honest one, that I'm going to try to think myself out of believing that God exists and that Jesus came and did what I've always said he did. He showed up on earth to love me and live life in my shoes, among my dust, in order to give his life sacrificially for my good and to example and give away goodness and hope through the resurrection. I was going to try to think myself away from that. And in that journey, I found um, a man, a mentor. Um, he was a professor of mine in my theological coursework who observed me and began asking me questions about um, some of the things I was bringing up in classes, about my doubts. And he confessed um, over a cup of coffee that he also had huge amounts of doubts. And he'd been a, a, he has a doctorate degree in theology, a professor at a well-known seminary for about 30 years. He was writing a book that never, hasn't been published, but he wrote, was writing a book at the time called The Doubter Sensitive Church. And he asked if, he, if we could have a reading group, a study group, basically to become uh, just readers through the content of this material that he was accumulating, and if we would offer our own story, our own journey in real time. Um, and what it ended up being, it wasn't a, a study group to write a book. In fact, like I said, the book never was published. It was, it was catharsis, therapy, and a gift for those of us in that conversation. Because what we found, was the space to really ask and find good answers and also live at times in the ambiguity of not knowing all the answers relevant to our doubts. And one of the things that landed, I mean, I want to start here with our conversation. There's this moment in the life of Jesus where he's asked by this father if, if, if Jesus would come and heal the, the, the child of this father who's been sick. And it's, it's a ways away, and Jesus is asking the man, um, do you believe I can do it? Do you believe I can heal Heal your child. And, and there's this conversation that ensues, and eventually the man says this, and these words change the landscape for me of trying to understand who God is. He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. You hear what he said? I believe, but help my unbelief. And you know what Jesus didn't do in that moment? Jesus didn't destroy him. He didn't blow him up. He didn't annihilate him. He didn't harm him. He didn't hurt him. He didn't write him off. He didn't cuss him out. What Jesus did in that moment is he healed that person's child. He validated that real life position that that father was in. I believe you can do this, Jesus, but there's still parts of me that don't believe it yet. And Jesus took him seriously. So to begin this, let me just paint this picture. A lot of us have an on-off switch when it comes to belief and doubt. We believe either, either you are a believer in God or you're a doubter, and never the two shall meet. The problem is that's not the case. The reality is it's a spectrum. That all of us live on a spectrum of varying amounts of belief and doubt in all these categories. 
in a concept big, like the resurrection, like, do I believe that? Do I have a lot of certainty about that? Or do I struggle with that concept? Do I have some doubts wrapped up in the reality of like, yeah, I've never seen someone come back after they've died. That's a challenge for me. I think what this, this example and this life of Jesus with this individual shows us is that God is not threatened by our unbelief, by our doubts, by our questions. That I think it stimulates him. I think he shows in that moment that he's willing to engage the individual who's brutally honest about where they are and who they are. So here's how this morning is going to finish, what we're going to do. Um, we need to start somewhere in this conversation. So I'm asking the first question. And, and just being perfectly honest with you, I've got way more content than we can actually get through this morning. Um, so we're going to just like pull the plug at the right time and continue this conversation next week. And that's how this whole questionable thing is going to work for us. It's going to be quite different than our typical sermon series. Um, but we, we have to build some framework here. Now let me just say this last thing. I know that all of you, I should say, I know that none of you, um, are, none of you are wired the way I'm wired. And I'm not wired the way you're wired. And so this is coming out of my soul and my mind and my heart as a gift to you. But if this is absolutely a bore to you, a yawn, I totally get it. And you, you have my permission, if this is just not where you are right now, if this is not the stuff you want to be focused on, that's okay. But I would challenge you that what we're going to be talking about in these next few minutes begin to build a foundation for the rest of our understanding of faith. So, I want to start with this concept. <clears throat> a lot of us use words to describe God and describe what we're talking about concerning God um, that we need to explain. The first one I want to put up on the screen is this word doctrine. Um, it's, a, it's a word that I think we use kind of flippantly when we're just talking about ideas of God, but I think we need some precision when it comes to what we're talking about with the doctrine. Doctrine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to categorize it this way, and, and you can see I put a line on the screen on purpose. Doctrine, I'm going to just hold as, this is everything God knows. Okay? God, God knows who he is, what he is, what he's done, what he's capable of, what he's doing, what he's going to do. He knows all of those things. The challenge is, just by show of hands in the room, who's God in here? Any, anyone in the room this morning, God? Good. I'm really grateful that no one raised their hand to that question. It's a humbling question, right? But the reality is, we don't know what God knows the way he knows it. We don't view the world the way he views it. We, we don't understand it the way. We don't understand ourselves the way he understands us. What he knows, I'm going to ca- categorize as a doctrine. Now, I'm not the authority in the matter, if you have a different definition you want to use, but this is our working set of pieces of language that we're going to use this conversation. Just below that, below that line, I'm going to put another word. I'm going to call it theology. Theology is a compound word coming out of the Greek. Um, Theos means God. Logos means word or knowledge. Just like biology is the word or knowledge of everything living, theology is the word or knowledge of everything that has to do with God. It's just a a big bucket to hold all the conversation we have concerning God. But here's what's important to me on this. It's what we have access to directly. It's the conversation we're having right now. It's a theological conversation about God, about doctrine, about who he is and what he is and what he's doing. And the two have to be separate for this reason. We have to be willing to admit that we're not God and we're limited a bit or quite a bit in what we do have access to and how we have access to it. Now, I know this is disturbing for some of you who grew up in a church or a Christian context 
that would tell you otherwise. It would say, I'm just going to tell you from the voice of God, here's how the world is, here's how the things are, here's how you are. And there's some good in that. But we have to also humbly admit that not a single person in this room has ever sat on the throne of God to view the world the way God does. And the problem is, a lot of times we, we pretend that we have or that we can. Even it gets really dangerous teaching people, preaching, being a pastor, because people look at you and say, what does God think about this? And oftentimes my internal soul says, meh, I don't know. I'm not there. Frankly, I'm with you. I'm one of these humans who's applying myself to try to understand God, yes. But for me to speak authoritatively, there's a word for it in Latin, ex cathedra, from the throne of God. It's just, it's impossible for us. And we have to keep that in view as we press forward. So first of all, we are not God. That's our starting point, okay? And anyone in this room who's going to claim otherwise or pretend and act otherwise, I'm going to continue to try to call that out in us. That we just can't stand in the seat of God and speak to the world or to the people around us in our church community as if we know with certitude the same things that God knows. Secondly, we must begin with and maintain a humble theology. I can't tell you um, how disturbing it was for me to, to come face to face with my own ego and pride um, it's still here, I'm not saying it's over with, but it came into full view uh, in seminary. Uh, different, different phase of my education process than when I was seriously questioning and thinking about leaving God behind. Um, when I first moved to seminary and, and got to Illinois and didn't know anyone, I realized that uh, where I had been a high achiever among my, my undergraduate classmates, I was now average among some of the most intelligent, wicked intelligent people concerning the things of God. And what I, what I started pressing into was uh, the rat race of arguing with other people about things that uh, really mattered to us, about things of God. And as we got in those arguments, what, what oftentimes happened was we came to a stalemate where we were both very angry with no resolution. Both of our pride and egos had been left intact, but we hadn't gotten anywhere. You see, if we, can, if we can understand that we're trying to understand the mind and the actions of God, that we're trying to approach him and, and get access to what he is and who he is, and we can, we can admit that we're not him, that keeps us in this humble posture, this position that's vital to us as Christians, that no matter what we're talking about when we're talking about God, no matter what we're talking about when we're talking about the Christian life and experience, it has to come from a place of humility. A humble theology is necessary. And not just as a starting place, but we have to maintain it all the way through. So all these conversations we're going to be having about these questions that we have together, oftentimes you're going to hear me say, you know what? There are three really good views on this. All of them that could be linked to really good pieces of scripture. And at the end of the day, I don't know if I have an answer for you. That's legitimate. Like that is, that is the place we live in as we follow Jesus. Now, I know that may feel like things now are just eroding. Well, then how can we be certain? How can there be anything that we're confident in? And here's my third point. We can have confidence and conviction. You see, just because we're humble and because we're not God doesn't mean that God hasn't given us access to him. And it doesn't mean he's not given us very good and very direct access to him. It just means that we have to admit the reality of the situation, that it is challenging. And it's going to take a lot of our energy. 
and a lot of our effort to really wrestle with and understand who God is. Point in case. We just finished our, our book in John. And, and yeah, I make fun of myself because other people make fun of me. And it's easier to make fun of myself than let you make fun of me. Um, that we spent a great deal of time in the book of John. One of the reasons why we spent such a great deal of time in the book of John was because it was written nearly 2,000 years ago by a person who didn't speak our language in a context that we're not familiar with, about a person who's claiming to be the single most important person on planet Earth. Guys, it takes a serious amount of energy and effort to approach that and a serious amount of humility to say, okay, I have some limitations here. It's not just what my pastor when I was 18 told me is true about the world. I have to find out for myself. Who is this God who's claiming to be the one who's rescuing humanity? We have, to, we have to apply ourselves. And when we do, what I'm saying is, yes, we can have confidence. We can have conviction. We can come to a spot with, with some certitude that, yeah, that is actually what I think is true about God. Now, the question I'm putting in front of us this morning, and we, we just have a few minutes left to begin this conversation. It'll sound really basic, but I'm going to frame it this way because I, I think it's just a fun way to phrase it. What about the Bible? So this this whole thing, right, this whole thing of our access to God, our theology, and our, you know, or can we approach God and our doctrine, it really hinges around something that we take as granted as followers of Jesus, and a thing that we're really quite skeptical of, or our friends and family are skeptical of, if they're not following Jesus, the Bible. So what about it? What about this thing that, in many cases for us, has been the primal source of understanding who God is. What of that? We need to talk about it. We need to talk about it in terms where we can actually understand what it is. So I'm going to split this into two parts here for a second. I just want to talk about what it is, kind of it's, it's, it's uh, like the, the thing of it. And then I want to talk about what's inside of it. So first I want to talk about the form, and then I want to talk about the substance of it. Okay. So first of all, let, let's just get these, these all out here so you can see them all on the screen at the same time. This, this is a laundry list of what the Bible is, okay? And this is just the most basic laundry list. 66 unique volumes. If you understand the Bible, um, it means book, the word, uh, coming out of the Greek. Um, but it's not a single book. There are 66 of them included inside of it. Written by something like 40 or more different authors. Um, so it's not one person, one human, sitting down and penning the whole thing and creating this massive you know, anthology of life and stories. It spans about 1,500 years of human history, um, located um, kind of between two different testaments. We'll get to that more in a different conversation. Um, written in three different languages. Originally, the first part is Hebrew with some Aramaic. The second part is some Aramaic, largely then made of Greek. So three different languages over three different continents, Europe, uh, Asia, Africa, with a single storyline. Now, this is data that you don't need to retain or have. If you want to write this down, fantastic. But I put this out here to say it's more complicated than we want to make it. Maybe you've done this before, and I'm, I'm just going to give you my two cents on it for what it's worth. I think it's a pretty tragic experience when we engage the Bible to just flop it open, put our finger on a page, and say, that's my life verse. Because it's not appreciating what's really going on right here. Now, if you've done that before, please don't let me shame you into changing your ways. Let me just encourage you to think more more fully about what's going on in the book sitting in front of you when you open it. What we have is this collection of life 
happening on earth in a real time, in a real place, that is a bit more significant than a whimsical American view of what it is. So a layer deeper. I put up, up on the screen now is a list of all the genres of literature inside the Bible. We think about it flatly oftentimes. It's just one thing, right? Like it's just, it's just a single thing. It's just the Bible, right? Like it's all it is. But there's an origin story in there, which is a, a well-attested to genre across many piece, or pieces of literature across many people groups. People writing, how did we get here? How did humanity begin? It's narrative. A lot of it is narrative. There's law. There's prophecy. There's wisdom literature. There is poetry. Uh, there's biography. People writing specifically about a person. Very similar to narrative, but focused around an individual. It's a, there's research documentation. The Book of Acts is a research project written by Luke to try to say, here's how things started in the early church. There are epistles and letters. Those are, those are letters written to churches or to individuals. And there's apocalyptic literature. And, there, and there's some subset literatures as well. But I put this out here to say this. In just its form, in just the thing that it is, guys, it's complicated. It's unique. It's robust. It's, it's big. It's really, really big. And to say it's anything other than that, to say it's just this flat little book that I don't look at because my grandma gave it to me and sits on my shelf and I have the app on my phone and I open it when my pastor tells me to open it to that verse, is just a really narrow, shallow, misunderstood view of what the Bible is. I give this to you not, not just to like overwhelm you, but, but to give you a sense of awe that at its, at its structural level, the Bible is quite expansive. So what about the Bible? What about it? Transitioning away from that structural element, I mentioned that, yeah, there's these you know, 40 different authors, uh, 66 books, three different languages, 1,500 years, all of that. But I mentioned at the bottom there's one storyline. There's one storyline in the scripture. I want to I focus on that for the remainder of our time, for the next few minutes. You've heard me say this before if you've been around Church of the City. It's been in passing, but I, I want to put it at the forefront of this question. This, this is the way that I've, I've come to understand what the Bible is. This is my shorthand version of everything of what the Bible is structurally leading into what it says in substance. The Bible is the intersection between God's activity and the human story. Let me say that again. The Bible is the intersection between God's activity in the human story. See, both structurally, what it is written by all these different people with all these different experiences about, over all this time, and in its substance, what is actually happening, what's being said in it, is God is revealing that he is attached to humanity, that he's doing something among humans. And what we have in the scriptures is that contact patch, that place where God's activity comes into our world and touches earth. Our story. That's what the scripture is. Now there's a lot of details here I'm not pointing out. But what scripture is, is it is the human story. It is our story where God is doing something among us, with us, on our behalf, for our benefit. That is the starting place for understanding the rest of the small stories of scripture. So I'm going to lay it out this way. I like pictures. Um, I hope you like pictures too. Pictures tend to help me understand what's going on. That story, um, I'm going to use a little bit of a technical word, but I'm going to explain it, is called the meta-narrative, or the big story. Okay, the big story of Scripture is that God is doing something with humans. Okay? Leave it there. But it encompasses a lot of small stories. 
Let me just put a few of them out there for you. We have the garden, we have Abraham, we have the commandments, we have judges, we have kings, we have prophets, we have exile, we have the Messiah, we have apostles, we have the early church, we have letters being written back and forth between leaders and early church, and we have the apocalypse, okay? That's the Bible in about 10 seconds, uh, if you want it. Um, we have a lot of things going on. And some of those may have just been over your head, like, I don't even know what those mean. That's okay. Uh, we're not necessarily focused on those at this moment. We will. That's why we go through the scripture in great detail. But big picture view, there's a big thing going on, okay, in all of scripture. And like I said, I put it kind of generally, it's, it's the intersection between what God's doing and our story. Yes. But fundamentally, let's get more precise about this. What's going on through the whole of scripture, the thread that's going through all of this, is that we see not God just doing something. We see God doing something good. What we see is the story of God's goodness coming to earth. Now we use a word for that, and you've probably heard it before. It's called gospel. That was a word that was hijacked from the first century Greek world that the Christians began, Jesus even began using to say, I am good. I am good news. The world is, is a pretty broken place, and it needs some good news. And so the king shows up, and when he shows up, that is good for the world. But it's not limited to Jesus. You see, what we see through all of these stories, the common storyline is God is doing something among humans that is good. Now, I know that sounds basic, but we forget that. We get you know, knee-deep into a passage in, in Psalms, you know, a piece of poetry, and we hear a guy complaining to God about God abandoning him, and we forget this is still something pointing us towards the goodness of God. And so as we approach Scripture, this, this should be in our view at all times. That as people who are wrestling with trying to understand who God is through this access point of the scripture, God is trying to do something good here. Even when someone's angry with him. Even when someone doesn't understand what's going on. Maybe especially then, because I connect with it, I resonate with, with David as he's angry with God. And I can see God doing something good through this. So everything in scripture, let me just wipe the, the, the screen clean for you here for a second. Everything going on in the scripture is centered on that goodness, on the gospel. It's either on one end of the spectrum pointing us towards the gospel, or it is something that's an outcome of the gospel. The whole thing. Now we're, now we're square into the substance of what's going on in scripture. Through all those authors and all those books and all those letters and all those things, um, what we see is we see Jesus and God and his fingerprints everywhere leading us towards his goodness, or things being an outcome of his goodness. And remember I said earlier that, that we have to maintain a humble theology. We have to maintain a humble posture when it comes to God. There's one area of, of understanding who God is that I'm, above everything else, a bit more brash about. And it's the gospel itself. You see, we may argue about, okay, what's actually going on in the law and the prophets as they point us towards Jesus, and what are the implications of these 613 laws of the Old Testament for the person trying to follow Jesus today? And that's a great question, but here's the thing. It's not the gospel. Super important. Let's talk about it. But the gospel itself is primal for us. And this is where I landed when I was seriously questioning my faith in seminary. Is I, I came to a spot where the essential bit of the gospel, the essential piece of that, was so deeply entrenched in my belief system, I couldn't let it go. And all of my problems were actually with the outcomes of the gospel. 
all these things of how we behave and how we think and how we act and what we do as a community of faith. So let me paint this picture to end. The gospel is three things. Primarily, at the center, it is the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. See, as we go through this conversation of questions, a lot of our questions are not going to be focused on these three aspects. They very well may be, and we will address them if they are, absolutely. But the majority of our questions are, so what? So if Jesus showed up in flesh and bones and walked among us, and he gave his life sacrificially to love humanity, and he gives us hope of resurrection through his own conquering of death, well, how how does that have any effect on my relationship with marijuana? or alcohol, or my significant other, or my place of work. A lot of our questions are really about the outcomes of this. And so while I'm, I'm demanding that we maintain a humble theology, yes, our hinge point, our starting place, the place where we're going to continue to drive back to, to find a source, is the gospel. I'm a cyclist. Um, I enjoy cycling. I have for uh, about 15 years now. Um, I got into it because my roommate was into it, and I ended up uh, really enjoying the mechanical side of it, too. So I became a bike mechanic in college and helped pay bills that way and paid for bicycles that I should have never been able to afford because they cost more than the car that it was sitting under or sitting on, um, which is always funny when you're driving like a $500 car and you have a $9,000 bicycle on top, and you're more worried about the bicycle than the car. Um, but so was college life. And one of the things uh, that I really enjoyed was building wheels. Uh, bicycle wheels because it's so challenging and a lot of people struggled with it i wanted to get really good at it so bicycle wheel is fundamentally a very simple thing you have just have three pieces to it you have a rim on the outside that's where the tire goes you have spokes leading to a central piece called the hub and the hub is where everything spins around the balls right for a lot of us when we're talking about our faith we're talking about god we're talking about questions like this um we when we consider following jesus we pick up a spoke we put a title on it, we call it Jesus, we try to figure out where it fits in the wheel. Does it, does it fit next to my job or, or next to my family life or next to my, my view of sexuality? Does it, does it sit next to my, uh, my time I spend on leisure time, whatever? We have all these spokes of life, and we're trying to find the right spot for Jesus to fit in the wheel. And the problem is it, it's just an erroneous task in the first place because Jesus is not asking to be a spoke in our life. He's demanding to be the hub of everything that that we are. In the gospel, the reality of God showing up is that demand. It's Jesus saying, I showed up on earth and changed everything. And if you want to follow me, I I will demand to be the center of your life. And from there, to rearrange the rest of the pieces of your, of your existence and to affect the rest of them. So the reason we have to start with this concept right here, this reality of what we're talking about when it comes to the Bible and what it is and what difference it makes, here's where that breaks. If we start having conversations just out of our best knowledge, our best thoughts, or our best dreams and hopes for life and the world and for ourselves, fundamentally all we're doing is rearranging the spokes, just how we think they should go. But what we're going to be doing, even, even if you're a person who's struggling to surrender to Jesus, or you haven't made that decision at this point in your life, that's okay. For the sake of our conversation, we are going to be centering all of the conversation to the best of our ability, as humbly as humanly possible, around the hub of Jesus. We're going to keep driving back to these these points. 
this concept. Yeah, we'll be looking at scripture because this is the contact patch between God's activity and the human story. Yeah, we're, we're not going to get in fights because it is not worth losing the relationship with another soul over something that is a spoke issue. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll, we'll, we'll get heated. We'll get to disagree with one another. But you know what? Fundamentally, the gospel maintains its integrity and we're going to continue to try to figure out the rest of these pieces. So as we go forward, I want to pray a blessing on us. A blessing on you as we question, as we doubt, as we come to terms with our own doubt, and as we move forward. So if you would, let's just pray for a moment, and we'll move on. Jesus, thank you for being you. For being the kind of God who's, who's willing to engage our world the way you did. You didn't have to. You could have stayed distant and remote and safe, but you chose to, to show up. You chose to be among us chose to move into our neighborhoods and live life among us in a way that gave us access. And it's the kind of access that doesn't demand us being perfect or having it all figured out. It demands a willingness to put you at the center of life and walk with you forward towards your goodness, your wholeness, your completion. So God, our hope is there. Where we are in these moments, all of us in this room, we're all different. We're all in different spots. So I just pray, God, a blessing over our journeys individually and our journey collectively as we talk about some hard things. Help us. Help us remain humble. Spirit, we pray your convictions inside of us that you would teach and grow and shape us individually and collectively. God, for this community, I pray this would be a source of great health. In the moment now, and moments to come. Pray in your name. Amen.